welcome to the Socially Distant Craft Club Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Cockrell. Today's Monday, June 28th, 2021. This is Season 2, Episode 5, titled Coffee Talk. In this episode, I had a long, and I mean long, conversation with Sarah Barnett Gill, also known as the Queen of Coffee herself, Mama Mocha. Me and Mama Mocha go way back, but if you're just now learning about her, get ready. Her story is inspiring, her coffee is delicious, and you're going to want to take notes because there's lots of Mama Mocha-isms or little beans of wisdom that you might want to jot down. So go grab yourself a delicious cup of coffee, sit back, and enjoy the season finale of the Socially Distant Craft Club Podcast. So, Sarah, um, well, welcome to the show. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> okay. Uh, here at the Socially Distant Craft Club Podcast, uh, I love to, to, to cast a wide net and, and talk to people from from different kinds of avenues like at first it was you know what is crafting you know if people think it's like you know knitting or painting or you know macrame or whatever but I think that it can go a lot broader than that like whether it's people who craft you know whether they're songwriters or they make movies or they make you know coffee or, or whatever it is you know I just I like to to see how people work creatively and so I I knew you 20 something years ago, I was, or almost 20 years ago, I was working at Starbucks. I got a part-time job there. I was in Jacksonville, Alabama, going to school. And and we worked together. You were my shift supervisor. What a fun time that was, in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Starbucks was where you cut your teeth on uh, some of the hardest work for the least amount of money you're going you're gonna to get back then. Because that was that was a I remember working drive through shifts and being like 12 or 13 hours and just like crying in the corner and trying not to let anybody see me just hearing that B button in my ear like over and over and over and over again bing, bing. and I mean you just it honestly like we I tell people this and they don't believe me but we were I want to say the only Starbucks within a hundred miles or something we we're right we were on the, the interstate we were the only one on the I-20 in between Birmingham and Atlanta Yes. That's why it was so, we were like the highest grossing Starbucks in the Southeast for eight, I mean, a couple of quarters. It was insane. And then we're right yep. by Talladega. So whenever there was a race weekend, you had all, all the Talladega people coming through. That's right. And so you would do, I don't, I don't remember the numbers, but I mean, on a weekend, which is typically when I would work, you know, on, on a drive through shift, it was, it was countless. It was constant and relentless inside, outside people could just be people could be amazing but they could just be so nasty and that was my first true experience of like hardcore retail customer service oh yeah i mean you you don't know until you get somebody from Vega like trying to trying to spend ten dollars on two white mochas and they have the power trip of talking down to a barista on their 10th hour mm. you know what i mean and i something that i, I learned from that experience almost 20 years ago that I tell a lot of people now post uh, 
2020 apocalypse is um, it's called the service industry, not the servant industry. I'm not your servant. This is a service. You know, so you're coming here and you need to be nice. So you need to leave. But that was that was one of those things that like I, you just you you take the abuse for so long and that burnout is very real. You can't do it forever and ever and ever. There's a reason that Starbucks doesn't have a lot of people who have been there for decades because mm-hmm. it's rough. It is so rough. I mean, I remember we had to when people would ask for a French vanilla cappuccino, we had to ask them if they'd had one from Starbucks before because we had so many people expecting it would be uh, like a gas station drink. And then right. you'd make them some kind of cappuccino and they're like, well, this ain't but half foam. You didn't fill it up. You know, what? what is this? You know, right, like, well, that's, and you know what though, I've learned and I teach baristas now about that experience. I tell them, There is a type of demographic in Alabama in the South. This is like my exact spiel. And you can, they're going to order this drink and you can tell it by the accent. Mm -hmm. You can tell it by the way, it's going to give you your first clue. They're going to say, and they're usually pretty pretentious about it. Don't be put off by that. They're going to say, what kind of ice French vanilla cappuccinos y'all got? They're gonna ask about that. Does it have the crunched up ice in it or is it just the hot one? They're intimidated by the coffee shop culture. They probably don't have a coffee shop in their hometown. They are aghast that they're gonna have to spend five or six dollars on a drink. So you better treat them like royalty. And they don't know what to call anything. They don't know the lingo. They're intimidated by that. There's two ways of approaching it. I learned this at Starbucks. The first way is you're about to get in a fight with a redneck and you tell them, that drink is not actually what you think it is, sir. And then you're about to have a situation of the fight and that this is half foam. Or this is what I learned. You turn the accent back on them. So I take my customer service accent off and turn my country girl accent on. And I'll say, you know what? Me and my mama used to go yard sailing and we used to get these really good cappuccinos at this gas station in my hometown. And I can make you one that tastes just like it. We even have salted caramel and white mocha and I can make it with breve. So it's really thick and rich and put this really good whipped cream and some caramel sauce. Is that something you're into? And usually they say, yes, that's what I want. You know exactly. And so every time mm-hmm. they come back, like, I want that tall one. That tall one knows what I want. I don't want anybody else to make it but the tall one. So you're talking about yourself, not, not yeah, a drink. Well, you're no, the tall well, one. Well, sure, sure, both. I mean, I'm 63, <laughs> so yes. Both the tall, hot one. Make the tall, hot one, please. Yes, both <laughs> You have to read the room, dude. Like, you have to, like, understand where they're coming from. It's a psychological aspect of customer service. And so instead of causing a fight and a knockdown drag out, you created a customer for yourself forever because you were able to communicate what they wanted. And now they're willing to give you five or $6 a day for the rest of their life. Mm. So this is something that I've tried to train baristas. It's like, don't make the, don't make the rural people feel bad for not knowing what's going on. This is their natural psychological defense system. 
they're ready to fight with you because they expect you to be a pretentious boo-boo head that they've experienced at other third wave coffee shops. Mm-hmm. Like just Chick-fil-A them a little bit, you know, just go in there and, and tell them, you know, exactly what they want to drink and make it for them. You have to have a little force knowledge, but Starbucks, you know, through the trials of that and life in general, when you go through something that's so hard like that, I really try to think of it just tribulation in general right now and experiences, bad jobs, bad relationships, betrayals, different things like that. I try to treat it like eating a fish. You eat the meat, you leave the bones, you take the lesson from it and you leave the hardship behind because you're either going to get bitter from it or get better. And for a while, you know, I liked the path of getting bitter from things because it felt better to be the victim. But really, you have to be like, what did I learn from this? Like, yes, that was super hard, but like I learned so many things from that. And I'm going to apply that and keep pressing on because now I'm away from it. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And I can do something else with the lessons that I learned. And, you know, the continuous like B button in my ear, I might can forget and leave that bone behind or, (laughs) you know, the P or you have the funniest stories that we shall not name any of the people from that store. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Um, But like there was the one person that got written up slash fired. I don't recall for selling you UBB buckets out of the back door and got caught on camera. UBB buckets. Oh selling you remember the cream base that they made with the <gasps> vanilla bean frappuccino oh yeah like there was there was somebody with a local shop that Oops. was had a deal and was buying buckets and bringing the buckets back and was buying the base from a manager oh my gosh not a manager it was a it was a shift supervisor that shall not be named but anyway <laughs> they they but they was on camera so this was like the dumbest thing so dumb that was the dumbest thing that was ever dumbed and including myself in a dumb, I don't remember if you, if you remember this, but remember how those floors, we could never get them clean enough for the district managers. Oh my gosh. They were just, because there were so many, we couldn't get them to explain or, or to understand like how many people were coming through. And then we were at the end of a 12 hour shift. Mm-hmm. So we don't really have a lot of energy to scrub and deck scrub the floors. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, but, and I remember one night I got so frustrated and the regional manager was coming the next day and I took that spirit cleaner. It was like a concentrated paste bleach and it was like $30 a bottle. The manager almost killed me. Uh, I took like two whole bottles and I just squirted it all over the floor. I mean, you're supposed to dilute it. I put it all over the floor. <laughs> it was like a cream rinse. It was white. And then I took a deck brush and that's how I mopped. I just like scrubbed the whole thing and then gently put a mop. And I was like, this is just going to dry and it's going to bleach it. It'll be fine. The next day was like a winter wonderland of powdered bleach that everybody was just like walking through. Oh my God. And they had to call like EcoSafe to come and remove it. <laughs> and it was like I, I never had, knew about this. I had created a hellscape for the manager for the regional <laughs> because it was like <laughs> it was like this like ecological disaster. And I was like, okay, but y'all wanted the floors clean, and I could not do it. 
I didn't and, know what to do. And how old were you? You were like 19, 19 or 20 or something. Yeah, I was 19 years old back then. It's just, okay, so I remember by the time I was there, um, well, first of all, this as far as the shenanigans go, and I, well, heck, I can say it. I don't work there anymore. What are they going to do? We used to have things we'd have, we call the dance light, because I was always into like just using fun to get through the day. I'm like, this is also a part-time job for me, but it was really hard. And I'm like, if I can create community mm-hmm. in weird ways, that's the whole point. Otherwise, this is just a fast food job that I'm going to hate. But if, if it's fun, then it's something different. So we would have the dance light and we'd say the dance light is on. We would get up like cow, uh, coyote ugly style and we would dance on the counters. Absolutely not sanitary. We'd wipe them down after. But like <laughs> the customers loved it. Um, I had one customer. I don't know why I did. I, I would adopt a persona. She thought I was Irish for years. I'd like, I remember that. thank you for coming to Starbucks. This is Sean. What can I get started <laughs> for you? And I had to sit her down one day and say, yeah, I, I've got a confession for you. My last name's not Guthrie. I'm not from Ireland. I'm from here. I go to, and she was just like, she had, she had brought her family members that were visiting from out of town. I have got to go meet you. You've got to meet his name's Guthrie. Just like ours is. You're not going to believe this. He's from Ireland. We're from He's Ireland. exotic. It was like, we're related. I'm like, we're not really. Well, we might be. <laughs> as much fun as this is, I want to talk more about you. So okay. what- it might've been one of those Herculean shifts that we did. And we're all just like, you know, shell shocked at the end of the night, we're sitting around outside. It's like 11 o'clock midnight or something. And I remember we would have these little talks just like, you know, kind of coming down from, from a a crazy uh, shift at work. And what always struck me about you is, you know, you're like 19, 20 years old. And you're my shift supervisor and you're like, I just want to make lattes and just spread love. And I'm like, I want to be on Broadway. I want to move to New York City. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to do that. And I just remember on on one hand thinking, like, she just has such a clear idea of what she wants to do. Like, you want to make coffee, you want to roast coffee. I'm like, wow, that's so cool. But also like, how do you even go about doing that? Like, that seems really hard. And I, I, I just don't know. But then fast forward, you're Mama Mocha. You've got your own coffee roastery. You've got, or, or had at least several coffee shops. I mean, you ship coffee around the country. It's it's like phenomenal to me. And it's really, really good. So- Thank you. So how did how did that all happen? Um, a long road of eating a lot of fish and leaving a lot of bones. Uh, with the the tribulation stuff but you know I paid my dues through the system you know that was the first step because I went to Jacksonville for a short stint too pre-first marriage in order to open a coffee shop you know my boomer parents were like you got to go to college okay go to college for business you want to open a coffee shop and when I went I was like so bad at business school back then when I was 17, 18 years old. 
I was very creative and artsy and, and right brained. And I just hated the accounting portion of it. Now, now I would love to go back like freaking 35 years old and have had a couple of companies. Let me go back to business school and pick up some tips, please. I'm ready now. Um, but I, I needed to cut my teeth on the Starbucks experience and learning to look at the P and L's and learning to run horrendous lines with awful people. Um, and then, you know, I, I worked in Birmingham at Starbucks for a while for, uh, it was some, it was, it was difficult there in different ways. The corporate dynamic burned me out hard, hard at that store. Mm. Um, I was, you know how passionate I was about like selling things and let's do this. And I was always like trying to come up with new ideas and it was really not received well. It was taken more as like a challenge. Like I was challenging authority when I was there. And um, looking back, I can understand how maybe I could have had better life skills to navigate that. But when you're young, you just don't know. You're just, flying high on life and just like doing everything you know how to do and then I followed a boy I would say a boyfriend but it was real loose back then uh, (laughs) who to Auburn he was managing a bar who's much older than I was in Auburn and we had decided to sort of solidify the relationship question mark it never really got super solid it was like anyway that's beside the point but I, I went down to Auburn And I started managing another coffee shop that was a little less corporate, but, but not, it had multiple chains and it was owned by the same people that owned NASCAR. The, the dream of this coffee shop that was purchased, it was actually started by somebody in the specialty coffee industry that then sold it off to a daughter of someone higher up in NASCAR. Her name was Laytona. Laytona? Yes, she looked exactly like you think she did. Late, okay. And um, kind of like, I never actually met her. I just heard stories. And um, I inherited this like giant group of really, really hipster. And this was like, gosh, this was like 2006. Two that no, 2007, and uh, really hipster, like the beginning of like wokeness in Auburn, I guess, of progressiveness. And they were constantly trying to make me feel not as cool. And it was it was just a very strange time to to manage a shop because they wanted my payroll to be lower and lower and lower. And it eventually got to the point where I was single barring for like eight to 10 hours a day, doing food, doing lines, doing admin, picking up food. They didn't want to hire a food service rep. I had to go to Sam's and get it. And it had become like a really intense process because they were like, we need higher numbers, higher numbers, higher numbers. And I was like, Auburn doesn't work this way. Auburn is a cyclical town. You have fall semester, spring semester, summer townies. And I'm trying to, and they're trying to run it like a normal city, Mm. like continuous. But in this moment, I could see something they could not, and they didn't want to listen to me. And um, 
it was just this point where the employees were like, I don't know. They were, they were just over me. They, I think it was one of those like anti any kind of authority situations back then. Like some of them are cool, but some of them I'm just like, Lord have mercy. I'm glad you moved away from me. Um, (laughs) You don't need that bone. Ooh, that was a rough bone to learn. Like, I don't know. That was, that was a crazy. And I, you know, I drank a lot back then, but some of the employees like tried to pull me aside at some point and actually took me to Starbucks of all places to try to have a come to Jesus meeting with me about it. When I never drank at work, I never came in late. Like it was just them trying to judge me for my own social life. Mm. And I was, you know, come to find out that a lot of them were facing addiction issues of their own that I had no idea about, but I was just like, man, what a weird social dynamic that was. What a strange thing that like should never happen in a, in a business setting like that. That was so weird, but it, it was one of those kind of like things that broke me down where I'm like, it was one of my first inclinations of like, these people are not your friends. These are your coworkers. These are your employees. These are not friends that you can depend on and have that kind of intimate relationship. That was like the first time I learned that. I eventually, they, that company sent me to an SCAA conference. Now, what is that? SCAA specialty coffee association of America. Ooh. Um, now it's SCA special coffee association, which is more of an international integrated thing. They're, they're pretty fluid. They go in and out about a lot of stuff, but back then they never came to the South and this was an Atlanta convention. It may have been one of the first ones in the South. I don't know. And that was the reason they sent me because it was more feasible than putting me on a plane. And they wanted me to go and look for different things that I could purchase to put in the store and like cupcakes and biscottis and Mm. things that they wanted me to go to the trade floor and to go and like pick up things like that. And I was excited about it, but I was kind of burnt out with the company and I had been trying to get them to get better quality coffee for a while and they had kind of talked me into using Delano's, which is like a, a pretty standard, like second wave, legit roaster. I know a lot of people from Delano's and, you know, it's a drinkable coffee. It's good standard coffee um, from the Northwest. And, um, but they told me for brewable coffee, don't worry about it. You know, let's just get some from Sam's mm. because it's cheaper and they're, they're, focused on that bottom line which is important but the coffee shop culture aspect with these these owners was not present they weren't thinking about like we honor the farmers we know we know traceability we do specialty drinks they just wanted the money part mm-hmm. and it was really hard to bridge that for me as a manager and um and so i went and I remember when I walked in that trade show, I was all by myself and it was so overwhelming because there were thousands of people there and they all loved coffee and the energy was palpable. I remember crying for like 
15 or 20 minutes just walking around looking at things. I wasn't talking to anybody. I probably look like a crazy person with a badge <laughs> on. Like I was just like <laughs> crying because it, I was, my eye, my eyeballs got opened. You know, it was like the dream that when I was talking to you, when I was 19, a few years previous, I was like, Oh, this like getting plugged in with people who align with the same vision that I did mm. rather than just finding something that pays the bills that sort of looks like what you want to do. And I, I started taking notes and like my brain synapses were just firing like left and right. And I started getting cards from people who sold green coffee, which I had never seen before. I had never considered coffee you know, what it looks like. I mean, I always wanted to roast, but I always thought maybe going into like the Starbucks roasting facility or something, you know, like I wasn't thinking about, I could buy green coffee, you know? And then I was thinking, and then I was thinking, you know, that I could go and purchase a roaster from one of these people who built coffee roasters. I was like, oh my gosh, people build coffee roasters here in the United States. Oh, here's somebody who sells bags. Oh, here's, and so I built a business plan with business cards that night wow. of just like, I can put all of these pieces together. I had pricing from all of the stuff. And so the first thing I did was I went to the store because I kind of felt a sense of loyalty to that company. And I was like, okay, y'all like, here's some cupcakes, whatever we can buy these. It'll be okay. Um, but, but I also, but I also think in this back room that we're using to store frozen bacon and cheese, <laughs> that, um, I could put like a one to three kilo roaster and have like two bags of coffee and we could roast on site Wow! and it would save you money. Cause I could roast for you. And it would be something really cool that we could sell that would make us like a different kind of brand. They hated it, Cody. Mm. They hated it. They were like, no, no, no. That's too involved. That's, you know, it takes all kinds of stuff. You don't know anything about roasting. We're not doing that. Definitely not. And so I took, it kind of shot me down because I was already riding high on the -hmm. vision. And then I took a step back and I prayed about it. And I was like, okay, this is something that's like been embedded into my heart. And so I talked to my mom and dad. I was like, I think I can do this. I think that I can open a roasting company. And I have enough clients from Birmingham, from Oxford, from all these places that I worked at these shops for $5 an hour, $7 an hour, you know, mm-hmm. that, that I've been building relationships with and like paying my dues. I've developed a clientele. Some of these people still buy for me today. Some of my customers from that same Starbucks in Oxford buy my coffee on a monthly basis now, almost 20 years later. Wow. And so I talked to mom and dad and the original plan was for me to move back home to Gadsden and to try to do it on, uh, on broad street. And we were looking for places and how much it would cost and the logistics, which was way above my head, but I was trying. 
and I was praying about it. And there was a bookstore that all the baristas went to in town in Auburn called Newsroom. And it was a queer owned bookstore with a tiny espresso bar that didn't sell any drinks really just, just to baristas. I mean, they, they barely did like 50 to a hundred bucks a day in drink sales. It was like very nominal, but I was telling the bookstore owner, I was getting all these books on business and I was telling her my plan and she was like, follow me, went to the back and there's this room that I'd never seen before in the back of the bookstore and it was filled when I say filled I mean this was a horde of um 15,000 books in boxes and some just stacked straight up Hmm. floor to ceiling with a tiny hallway in between I mean it was a fire hazard it was rough (laughs) and she was like it was 11 by 16 foot room and she said if you will help me box these clean these and load them to my house i'll rent this room to you for 200 bucks a month and she was Mm. like you'll you'll have to do all the the stuff you know to get it renovated but like i would really love to have what you're saying in this store i think it would be a cool draw and so i talked to my parents about it and we prayed about it and my mom took out a small micro loan for me i mean literally we started with like 10 bucks and a burrito we started with like a very (laughs) nominal amount i think i think i got like three bags of coffee in the beginning i didn't Mm. have like hardly anything and a three kilo i could do five pounds at a time i got some bright purple bags my mom hand painted this like slick backer board zebra print and screwed it into the ceiling my dad brought his plumber friends. He got all his like, you know, workers down and I built the door. I built the sheetrock walls. It, they look terrible. I'm not good at sheetrock, but I did it myself to save money, you know, to like start up small. And that's how I started the roasting company. And the first couple of batches were awful, you know, cause I was learning. But then I did it every day because people kept coming back and they wanted to support me. Now, had I done that when I first started out, when I was 17, 18, I don't know if it would have worked the same way. But going through the hardships and going through the lessons that I needed to go through brought me to a place where I was ready to advance. Even in that season, I mean, I ate a lot of lentils back then. A lot of lentils trying to survive, you know, because even at $200 a month in rent, I still had a lot of bills to pay. I was still trying to pay my parents back. I was still trying to figure out the business and I, and I had to grow it from the ground up. You don't start out just living big, lush, you know, numbers. You have to grow the clientele and grow your craft. And I, I keep reminding myself of that even today when I'm starting something new or pivoting, it doesn't start out balling. Hmm. You have to grow it, and but the main focus has to be the passion of what you're doing. You have to love it so intensely that other people are like, she loves that. I love that she loves that. I can taste that she loves it. I want part of this. 
So it's not just a thing that I'm crafting that I sell. It's something that I'm passionate about crafting, that I'm passionate about selling to other people, that they feel involved in my craft as well. And, you know, I accidentally bought the espresso bar up front. I didn't really mean to. <laughs> Oops. It just, the bookstore turned nonprofit and she wanted to sell it. And so she offered it to me and the manager up front at the time. And I was like, well, I might as well. I'll just move it to the back. And, you know, and then it became huge. We went from like, we were in the beginning where it was like the goal was $100 a day in sales. By the end of last year, no. I guess it was 2019 we were averaging about two grand a day in sales my gosh right so it eventually grew over years of just of me because i was training the baristas in the same ways that i had been accustomed to training not starbucks per se but just the hustle and the volume of it mm -hmm. of this is how you move from a to b and this whole slow service thing in coffee shops like I respect it, but that is not my style. I'm not about that. I don't like waiting, and I don't like spending five minutes making a four-over. I hate it. Um, well, and personally, I, I do too. I don't even like having to take that long when I'm making coffee in my house. That's what I'm saying. What are we doing? <laughs> like, come on, let's get it going. What are we doing here? Um, so, but you know, for some specialty stuff, I'm okay with, you know, if, if it's like a $25 cup of something, like let's make sure we brew it absolutely correctly. But some of it just seems like such a dog and pony that people don't realize that a lot of people just come in to get the drug of caffeine. They don't want to talk about it. They just want to get their drink. Um, and some people really, they don't want to wait in the line. They're not going to come back. So if you want to develop like long, like regulars, you know, they're coming all the time. They need to expect that they're going to get it pretty quick. Um, and also have a really charming barista behind the bar that is witty and fun. And so that's what I try to train as well. And so I've opened shops and then I sold them. And I've opened shops and then I sold them. Because I like the, the culture of opening it. But something that I'm learning about myself is that I get really tired being bogged down with the numbers and then the management of it eventually. Mm-hmm. I really prefer the exciting idea and the springboard of the beginning of it. Unless I'm doing what I'm doing right now. I moved the roastery. We eventually outgrew that space in 2018. And um, I moved the roastery to uh, downtown Opelika, which is like, is beside Auburn. And there's two there's two breweries or just a distillery. There's a speakeasy, a record store, this like sustainable clothing company where they're making a lot of their own stuff there. I mean, it's a really cool block um, of people. And we all know each other and we all kind of craft and are artisans in our own ways. It's all locally owned. Everybody's a family owned business there. And, um, I have the bodega, which is on fr in the front of the roaster. The roasting company now is 2,500 square feet. And in, in the front of it is the bodega, which is this little tiny walk up. And it's just me and an espresso machine. And I've got some toasters for bagels. And you can just sit outside. And I was like, this is kind of my dream though.
And it's so weird that, like, literally just now, like, in the past few months, it's become that. And it's such a strange... Like, God... (laughs) The Lord literally had to take me through such a hard place in the past year to shake me free from ego about it. Because I had built up this huge coffee shop in Auburn, Mama Mocha's, and we had, you know, it was thousands of people that were coming in, and I was known as something. In my mind, I'm known as this thing, and my identity is built into this persona and this thing that I'm doing, and this productivity, and we had, I had 14 full-time employees, and the, the interpersonal dramas of it all was so much that it was like exhausting for me and I did my very very best (laughs) I did my best to manage that but oh my gosh that was oof lord Mm. that was crazy and um everybody wanted a piece of me everybody wanted to be my favorite everybody wanted to be my friend and to know me better than the other one did Mm. and something that I kind of realized in that that I'm learning now because now I'm I'm taking a huge step back from management because I'm so pregnant with twins right now and I realized that I need to take a step back from management to reprioritize and restructure how my brain views um, employees because we are not a family we're a team you know, like when you start viewing each other as family, it gets really messy because what I realized was a lot of people come from really jacked up family situations. I do not. I come from an awesome family. But when they feel like they're in a family and we say we're a family and then I hold you accountable or I fire you, it feels like you're getting kicked out all over again. It re-triggers things in your life that happened with your parents and abandonment issues and all this stuff. And it it re-triggers all of this hurt that's happening. And then you project it onto the company that was supposed to be the family. And it's really, you know, when you hear family, you think we'll do anything for each other. We're like blood. Well, really what should happen as a company is there's an expectation of what your job entails and then you're compensated with money for it. That's the dream, right? That's the idea. And then you're appreciated, but the expectation stops. This is what the expectation is. We're going to make sure that you're taken care of ethically and treated as a human. And then you go home and you don't have to worry about it anymore that's the goal but that's not really what's happened in in American business a lot is they expect you to have that servant like attitude in your mind that I must do anything for the family and this is loyalty that's not healthy Mm -hmm. that's that's not a healthy dynamic and it's really unfair for bosses and managers to expect that of people and you know I learned there were people in the company pre-pandemic that I had worked with for years that I really thought we were going to walk across broken glass for each other. You know, we had been through all kinds of stuff when the pandemic happened and I allowed people, I allowed them. I said, if you want to step away and go on unemployment, 
you have my blessing to do it. If you're not uncomfortable working, we'll figure it out. We went from 14 full-time employees to four. Wow. And so I was like, okay, okay, you know, put on your big girl pants. Let's do this. And so I had my team and we went to a half shift and, you know, we only operated from the door and we're trying to figure it out. And we just pivoted, pivoted, pivoted every, every, you know, every month, you know, it just seemed like something else was different. And then I eventually realized that the unemployment was going to run out for these people before the pandemic ended. Mm. And I couldn't bring them back because I'm not opening the cafe. Even though I was the only coffee shop that didn't open the cafe. Everybody else in Auburn opened and said, come in with a mask and then sit down and take your mask off. Mm. That's the, so to, to them, it looked like I was just kicking them out. But I had called all of them personally and said, guys, I, I will recommend you to another job, but I can't reopen the cafe. I can't open the PM shift because nobody's going to come for coffee at night just to pick it up. They want somewhere to sit. And so, you know, when the pan, this was in June, I made these phone calls. This was even before the second wave hit. I said, but we, there has to be a vaccine or there has to be something that's safe before I can bring you back. And so I made phone calls and, you know, I gave them recommendations and everybody got, you know, a job. But I saw some of those people later in public. Cody wouldn't even look at me in the face. I mean, talking horrible stuff about me. And I was just like, the betrayal of it sliced me so deep. But that was when I started thinking about this family versus team dynamic. Because I had to consider it from their perspective. They felt like I kicked them out. Hmm. They thought maybe that I should have worked harder to create something for them to do. But from my perspective, my business would have 100% closed. Because I was paying two and three people at a time hazard pay to run the shop at 13 plus dollars an hour on $5 an average sale from a window in Alabama. And so it was, I wasn't making any money, none. I was just trying to keep the business afloat. And I realized that we would absolutely have to close if I brought these people back. So I had to make decisions that disappointed people in order to save the company because I had to operate as a team leader and not a mama. Because I'm not their mom. They're not my kids. They're employees. That's why I'm taking a step back from management to reevaluate how this dynamic works and what expectations I will set in the future of what I do with this and the dynamics that we hold and just really recreating the entire coffee shop model and right now I'm only open three hours a week at the bodega three hours I'm open from 7 to 10 a.m on Fridays Mm -hmm. and the rest of the time I'm in the back with my son Samson who is four and my husband Taylor and we're roasting and delivering and we're roasting and delivering we've been the only people in the 2500 square foot space working 50 and 60 hours a week for a year wow 
and cranking out thousands and thousands of pounds of coffee. And we've had to be really careful and, and it's specific and strategic of how we do it now because the orders are are big, you know, and there's a lot of them. And I write hand notes to handwritten notes to every person on every orders, box. On every box. And I want to make sure that it's like specifically from me to someone. And um and it's interesting with the coffee shop because all of Opelika wants me to be open all the time up front, mm-hmm. e- even though I'm ridiculously pregnant and I have another business to run. that's like making good money. And they're like, well, I don't understand why you just don't open every morning. And I'm like, cause I'm already working eight to 10 hours a day and you want your latte. So you want me to work 12 to 14 hours a day, three months pregnant or, you know, seven months pregnant with twins so that you can get your latte. Well, I'm setting a boundary for myself, sir, because I don't, they're like, why don't you just hire people? Because when you hire people, now you're taking the position of working as a manager, because when you hire people, you don't just say, do the job and walk away. That's poor leadership. When you hire people, you're their support. You're making sure they know how to do what they're doing. They're trained, they're set up, and they're always going to text you about stuff going on because when the business is open, it's like a living organism. It's constantly moving and it needs that leadership there. And I've counted the cost and I ain't willing to pay it. I'm not doing it. And so I've tried to tell people like when the babies come, I'm going to take a short maternity leave and then I will come back with those babies the babies will be on the bar with me i'll either be where i'm not kidding i'm either going to be baby wearing them or i have like specific i took out a whole table that was like food production in the back of like the bodega which is the small room for swings for baby swings and they're going to be over there beside the bagel area in in the swings and then i will make drinks for three hours a morning and when I'm ready and they start getting older and we, if we can hire anybody for the roastery or whatever, and we start progressing, then I might be able to step into the position of leadership to train a barista to work in the morning, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, but in this time, in this season, I'm not your servant. I'm providing a service. This isn't corporate America where I'm just going to make, I need warm bodies in the position so that people can come by whenever they want for a coffee. And I think so much of what you're experiencing just has everything to do with the public's expectation of what a business is. Like if you have uh-huh. a coffee shop, that means it is going to be Starbucks. It's going to be Dunkin' Donuts. It's going to be something like that where, you know, obviously you're open seven days a week because I have to have coffee. Right. Uh, and other societies are different. Like when I travel, you know, you go to Japan and sometimes you go to a place and it takes a long time. Sometimes you have one guy and that's all he does is make coffee and he sells it. And he might only have a, the shop open one day a week. And it's uh-huh. just a one person operation and it's, nobody's really mad about it. It just is the way that it is. There's a, right. a guy in Tokyo who has, uh, he's really pretty famous. He's got this record bar and he's got I mean, thousands upon thousands of records. Cool. And um, I mean, all kinds of famous musicians go there and they, you know, go to hang out and he makes drinks, you know, he's a bartender, but um, it's not like a super fancy 
situation. I remember I was there and I, I had asked for sake or something and he was as close to being rude as you can be to be Japanese. They're super nice, but it was kind of like, no, we don't have that. We have this or we have this. <laughs> and it was, I was like, okay, all right, message received. This is what you're doing here. And it's not, you know, I, I didn't get mad about it, but I think that that is not really a thing that is uh, a common mentality in businesses in the U.S. as much. No, they want it right now. They want fast food service at all times. And then if the small business doesn't give them what they want, they have a Karen episode and go online and write a crazy review. You know, or it's funny because we have a ring doorbell on the outside of the bodega. People, I don't know if they don't realize that we can hear and see everything they're saying. So it's like a fun game for me to just to go and to review all the, the things that people say about us when they see our hours. <laughs> um, or because there's all the distilleries and stuff, we see every drunken shenanigan in front of our door. Like I'll turn my notifications off and the next morning after Friday or Saturday night, it is the funniest show to watch everyone and hear the conversations like in front of the store. Um, but they, you know, you, I'm trying to explain to people, there's this new way that we can see small business and craft artisans and people who do things rather than trying to force them in the box of profiteering capitalistic American models of to be an intentional consumer. So instead of going to Walmart, instead of going to even, I mean, instead of even going to Whole Foods or Earth Fair, which they're cool, you know, but if you take the time to go to the small business when they're open and purchase the things that they are offering, they may not have everything you're looking for. It may not be hyper convenient for you. It may not be a drive through situation, but if you intentionally want to spend your money on the thing that they have to support that person, it has such an effect on that business, on that craft producer, on whatever that you as the consumer can just directly bless and benefit their life in ways that you can't possibly understand and are also fighting the system that perpetuates profiteering on the backs of a literal servanthood model that everyone hates, but everybody still keeps going to the big box stores and putting their money there anyway, out of convenience. And so I'm trying to explain and kind of like preach this, this way of thinking of, of intentional consumerism, especially in small towns like Alabama, um, especially in, in places here. And I'm going to tell you something, Cody, like we, we have received, like, I'll just go ahead and be like really forthright about it. You know, this past Friday was like a freak accident of a sales day for the bodega because we got, so I don't know if it's because I'm pregnant or people just want to support me or like what happened, but it was me and my mom running the bar. And in three hours, we got $800 of sales. Oh my gosh. And a walk up like the, the, and I mean, it's one day a week. So it's not like I'm just balling out of control. You know, that's for the whole week, right? but it's, it's something that can help keep the business afloat it's something that can help pay the rent and the stuff and it's 
literally only because of intentional consumerism. Mm. Those people came by, they waited in line, they had their money in hand ready to give it to me for a, a product that I made because they loved me. They loved my mama. You know, they, she's like forcing muffins and cookies on everybody. It's, it's, it's like a show <laughs> you would like every time I make somebody's drink, she pops up behind me. She's like, do you want a muffin? And who can say no? Like she has, an I mean, I want a muffin. success rate, right? Like it's just the most precious thing. And she bakes cookies every week. My great grandmother's, um, secret tea cake recipe that's like civil war era she stamps it it with a mama mocha logo and she puts a laminated card of wisdom in each ziploc bag Mm. and hands it everybody gets a note of wisdom from her and a cookie that comes in everybody um does she does she send those cookies out can i order some of those cookies I will talk to mama and I will send you some of the cookies with the wisdom on the next box. Because I need me one of those cookies. That sounds so good. There is kind of like a biscotti kind of tea cake texture. Mm -hmm. It's really good for like dipping in your coffee. But just be forewarned. Like once you have one, you're like, why do I not have 15 more of these? It's going to be a problem. The whole business part is hard to explain to people of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because anybody who who thinks about business, they're like, well, what are you doing next? How are you going to grow? Well, what's the next plan? What's the next step? And I'm really over that. I'm really over that thought of constantly getting more locations and bigger and better and bigger and better. And let's take over. And I just, I just don't want that. I really want to get back to the roots of like what I love doing. And that's loving on people, making lattes, roasting coffee, thinking about coffee, thinking about origin trips. And now I'm going to be a mom of three, which is, I know that's so crazy. So you're already busy expanding. Well, yeah, I'm literally (laughs) expanding in this chair right now. So, um, so it's just a different model of the way of doing things. And also as a mom, all the books and all the other mom entrepreneur, entrepreneurs that I know are telling me, you need to get an all pair. You need to get a nanny. That's the only way you'll be able to run the company. Right? Well, you know what? I think that is crap. I don't think that's right. Um, because Samson, you know, we had him in like, a little bit of a CDO program, a kid, a children's day out. It was like three hours, five hours at a time. But he has spent every single day with us over a year now at the roasting company, sweeping up beans, being with us roasting, doing all this stuff. And, you know, when you talk about traveling, even European countries, different countries that are not America, when you have family-owned businesses, the kids come with you. Hmm? If you have a family-owned business, like the kid will come with you. And there's all kinds of books about how to be a, oh Lord, the MLN moms. Like, oh, you're a mom. Let's make some money from home. Drive all your Facebook friends crazy by trying to sell them this thing, you know, or how, how to do it, you know, once you're a mom and now you want to be an entrepreneur. But there's nothing about 
oh, you're an entrepreneur and you had kids. This is how it works. Right. There, <laughs> there's nothing about that out there of like how to breastfeed while you're while you're doing a, a PL report. I mean, how much it, of that do you think is like implicit gender? Like, oh, well, it's, you know, because you're a, a woman-owned business and a woman-owned company. Like how much of that... Uh, l- let me rephrase that question. When you go to trade shows, and I- I'm assuming that y- the first one that you talked about going to, like that's not the only trade show you went to. Correct, yeah. Um, and you recently, uh, before uh, COVID, of course, you went to like a, a latte art competition, like just uh-huh. really cool stuff. Um, how often do you see other women that own businesses, other women entrepreneurs? I've met more of them now, but I think it's because I've sought them out on social media platforms mm. and they're not, they're not close to me. There's, there's, they're spread throughout regionally, you know, like I don't meet a lot of them and there's coming more now than ever, but I'll, I'll tell you, speaking to what you're asking when it used to be me and Taylor, my husband, who when we were we were married for three years before I even let him in the company, I would not put him on payroll because I wanted to make sure the marriage was going to stick. Mm-hmm. You know, like this was mine. I built this. This is not <laughs> ours. Okay. Right. But now he's he's like he's in it to win it, and he's helping me build this thing, and we're a partnership, and it's fine. But like, I had to make sure. But he would come with me to trade shows. And they they would always shake his hand first. Like he was the one to talk to. Wow. And and we all I mean he thought it was hilarious because he back then he didn't know crap about coffee and like what what was going on. He was there to, to be with me because he adored me. And I would just kind of step back and smile. And they would be asking him all, him all this stuff, and he was like, well. Uh, my name's Taylor, but I don't know anything. She's the boss. You got to talk to her. <laughs> and they would just kind of look at me and I would just have my arms crossed like, hello, I'm over here. Hi. So that was kind of a thing. And it took me a while to cut my teeth and become known in the specialty circuit. That now when I go, they're like, oh, that's Mama Mocha. Then I started having people reach out to me. There were other women business owners or like, how did you do this? And how are you? doing that I know I know one other um coffee roaster from California Jen Apodaca um and she owns mother tongue coffee roasters and she'll do uh videos and stuff with her roasting and her kids on the iPads behind her and her kids are with her you know or her husband will come and kind of wrangle them up while she's roasting And, and it's a very similar dynamic and I love her. I love talking to her. She's hilarious. We're very similar, cut from the same cloth kind of people. Um, you know, like I feel like we would hold each other's hoops for a minute. You know, like it's it's a really good, it's a really good dynamic. Um, but I think I would like to see more of it. But you have to. There's not a a a way that is paved. For it, you have to forge your own path in it. You have to just pull up those bootstraps and go forward. No one is going to, it's not going to be easy as a woman business owner. It's not going to be easy as a mother business owner. And there's really not going to be a lot of people to help you, quite honestly. 
Like you have to just like get up and do it. I always try to say community over competition. You always help the person next to you. You love on them because if they're doing what I'm doing better than me, then shame on me. I can't be jealous of the other person. You have to look at the other people in your industry as inspiration, not competition. And there is a butt for every seat. I mean, there really is. I mean, sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but there really is a butt for every seat. Like um, when I got this job that I've got right now, like, I mean, I was, I was, I was hustling in New York for sure. And uh, I was getting work. I was liking my work. I was exhausted. It was always, kind of unpredictable hours, but it was always interesting stuff. But I was ready for something a little bit more stable. And I had tried to get some different kinds of jobs. And I really went for one uh, that I thought was going to be a really good fit, but it ended up not being offered to me. And I, I went through this kind of bitter period where I, I sort of felt like it was a bait and switch. Like I was like, man, you know, they brought me right up to the very last, you know, step. And then they went some other direction. Well, I mean, that happens in every single industry, but I just had not really experienced that yet. But the job that I've got now, I didn't realize how good of a fit it was for me. And like, I was a solution to their problem, mm-hmm. a problem I didn't even know that they had, you know, and I have this very specific skill set that works in that position really well. And, you know, it, it's not useful. It, it It's counterproductive for me to try to compare myself to you know another teacher at another school another program another musician another something else because you know they have them and and now this other place has me two different needs right and i i see that happening with artists and crafters and i mean especially in in fields that are so competitive like in in uh, musical theater for instance like uh you know a blonde soprano who needs to do three triple pirouettes and you know in in a row and just all this stuff you're like i mean if they if you do fit all the boxes that's great but that box is shaped to be like a chorus person It, it would be so much more rewarding if you just do the honest work yourself and say you know what i don't want to do three triple pirouettes in a row like i just want to sing a beautiful song and wait for the opportunity for that, you know, for, for something to be right, I guess. Yeah. So trying to force it or to become inspired by whatever inspires you, you know, I don't know a lot about the, we've, we've always had a lot of theater graduates to work on the bar at Mama Mocha. So like, I've always known a bunch of the theater people. They're some of my favorite people in the world. Um, but yeah, they're, it's so Actually, the guy that I followed down to Auburn that was the loose relationship was a theater graduate managing bars. Um, So he still has not done anything with theater, I don't think. Um, But it's something that you get involved in because people are passionate and it's fun. Right. And it feels like this community and like everyone has a place. But then when you graduate and it's time to make money and to find a job in it. Mm Mm-hmm it's freaking painful because it feels like perpetual rejection and it feels like, you know, you can't really find a, a, a theater company that, that values you or can, fi- can make 
make a position that you would fit in and excel in. You're just filling in these little bits and pieces. Right. You know, and I, but I think there's something so valuable about what people can do if they follow their creativity. I know that sounds so dumb, but like, if you follow what you want to create as a creative, rather than how do I make this salary with this creation degree that I have? You know, if you follow that, that artist role and that is almost like a leadership in your own creativity, whatever that may be, it may not look like what the book said it should look like. But if you follow that and you kind of hone in on that craft and you follow kind of like where, where the Lord or the universe or whatever is, is kind of leading you to and opening these paths towards, you're going to find the right place to be you know rather than trying to force it and you're going to end up in some kind of weird cubicle and hating your life just trying to to do what you think you need to do to pay them you know college fund bills that is the truth oof that's a that's a rough place a lot of people are in right now so auburn's auburn's awful about having i mean most of the service industry in auburn are people that are desperately trying to get out of student loan debt Mm. and they can't, they can't find a job in their field. And so they're just like serving tables until they're 35. Wow. You know, of just like trying to figure it out. Um, So I I don't know. It's hard for me because I'm a college dropout. You know, it's hard for me to relate to that, that struggle, but also it's really interesting. Like I've been invited to the university two or three times to their business school to, to have a lecture. Wow. And, and I'll go and I'll give lectures either to food and hospitality or to the school of business, talking about food production, draft food processing, stuff like that methods I use. Um, and they always find out that I didn't graduate college in the middle of the lecture. And you can see it on the professor's face of like, oh, shit. Uh-oh. you know, <laughs> I'm like, I guess you should have like vetted me or something, you know, like some rando. But, you know, I, I've been a business owner for 11 years, you know, and I've got a successful business. So they just assume and I'm, I'm, right. I'm re- relatively eloquent. I can hold my own, you know, I can serve wherever I got it. Um, but, uh, I try to explain to people, like I went through, uh, you know, a college of life for a while and I, I hate, I really hate to to see college students in business where it's just in one ear out the other and they know the kind of knowledge, but they aren't passionate about how to apply it yet. Cause I feel like it's so underserved like they need to go through another kind of course before they get to that because they're not mentally or emotionally ready to receive that information if they are planning on being a business owner or an entrepreneur i think one thing that's so special about you is you had this dream that this is what you wanted to do i want to make coffee i want to make lattes i want to love on people you had a very clear vision of of what would make you happy like that's that's the thing 
Right. And then later on, it was like, okay, how do I learn the business skills I need in order to serve that goal? And I think that so many people go to business school. I I mean, I work at a prep school and I'll have kids in my music classes and, you know, say, oh, you know, do you know what school you want to go to? Like, what what college are you going to go to? What are you going to study? And so many of them are like, oh, I'm going to study business. I'm like, oh, what what are you going to do with that? Oh, I don't know. Like, that sounds like the most horrible thing to me is just to go to school to learn business, some some kind of business, doing something with business. I mean, music business, sure. If you want to like manage bands and record labels and stuff, that that's not really my thing, but I get that because you have a specialized interest. But I can't imagine being a student and going into just flat out business school. Like it might as well just like say, I want to be an accountant because I love numbers. And if even then, if you love numbers, that's something you love. It's not like I want to be an accountant because that's a thing I can do. Maybe the question that we should start asking these kids is not what are you going to study, but or where are you going to school? But what are you what are you passionate about? Maybe the question needs to be like, what do you want to do with your life? Like what, what fuels your passion currently right now? Like, don't tell me your plan of institutionalism. Don't tell me I'm going to do A and B and C and I have it all figured out. And here's my plan because that's unreasonable. We know that that is not, who knows what the future holds, but what, what inspires you? What are you passionate about currently right now? And I worry about that, not to sound like the oldest woman in the world, but I, I worry about that with, even with myself and viewing my son with the screen time, because I feel like so much of like our culture now and the way our brains are trained to like check out by either TV or going to the phone, we're really numbing the anxiety or the, the instinctual push to pursue passion. And it, we're really kind of like, uh, it's like, you know, that, that term doom scrolling. Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. This is, this is something that I kind of figured out psychologically by studying my parents this past year. Um, (laughs) And also a few other people. Um, I've been I've been off of Facebook for about a year now, and I started kind of reviewing back. I started uh, being on social media and screen time. Remember AIM and MySpace mm-hmm. back in like two thousand three, two thousand four, or maybe even a little earlier than that. Really, I think I got my first MySpace in two thousand or something. Right. Anyway, that was when I first started like really digging into that. And that really started my addiction to it. I remember being up all night on my dial up desktop computer in my parents' computer room, like with the cruncher, like connecting the dial up internet. (laughs) And then just talking to all these strangers and all my buddies. This was before texting. I had a beeper back then. 
like you know there was before cell phones you had call waiting on the landline with a long curly thing I mean this was like back in the day but that's how it started mentally for me and my parents never got it they were like this is so weird who are you talking to strangers this is the pedophile what's going on you know (laughs) and then you know only in only in recent years have they gotten iPhones Mm. and Facebook and now they're putting god knows what on their feeds that is like not even Snopes checked like just terrible things I'm just and I'm and they're like you would not believe what she said I'm like mom this reminds me so much of when I was 12 and 13 and 14 years old and starting on MySpace. Like you have got to adjust to this quickly. Like this is a, a social media where, you know, trying to explain that and cover that gap knowledge. But then I, in 2020, during a place where we were all kind of like held captive in our own homes where we're so used to being entertained by being around each other and out and socialized and all this stuff. We're bored and uninspired in our own homes because we've been kind of numbed to passionate pursuit of things by capitalistic, you know, pursuits of jobs or or whatever the case may be. And so you turn to social media on your phone because it's easily accessible And you can get a high off of being angry or anxiety filled. And I think that's where the doom scrolling happened is you just want to feel something. Mm. You're just looking for something to inspire that adrenaline, something to make you feel alive, anything. And there was no good thing. So you're just looking for the bad things subconsciously. Because you want that synapse of something to make you feel. And I started, and it's the news is the same way right now. And everybody's like, everybody's just so angry with everybody. And I'm like, I'm not really sure what you're talking about because I'm not witnessing that. Hmm. I'm not, I'm not involved in that avatar anymore. I unplugged that avatar of my life. I woke up and I have come out of the matrix and now (laughs) I'm living my everyday life in my home. Um, Right. So you know, and that's, I worry about that. I was talking to some local women here trying to develop some diversity inclusive uh, programming that was intentional in our our community. And um, we were talking about that, about trying to create real face-to-face connections with people or different things that inspires the synapse of hope and peace and creativity. What can we do that people become addicted to that good? What can we do where people want to be a part of something that enriches them where instead of doom scrolling, they're looking for a good thing mm-hmm. because they have found an adrenaline rush of something that's passionate and positive and creative. And rather than being obsessed with cancel culture, maybe they're obsessed with a culture that enhances something that needs to be elevated. You know, that's why uh, I, I, if you're listening to this podcast, the, um, or if you've been listening to it for a while, uh, we've talked about this a lot, but that's why I started the socially distant craft club on Facebook was, I mean, everything was going to heck in a handbasket and we were all stuck at home. And I mean, in some ways, in a selfish way for me, who I love crafting, I like doing all kinds of artsy fartsy things and making music and, um, 
and having permission to stay at home and sort of nest and just have eternal craft time was kind of nice. Of course, the the circumstances were not nice. So there's like sort of guilt um, built into that. But I found myself just numb, like what you're describing, just numb, like scrolling through things. Oh, this is what happened. This happened here and this happened here. And, you know, and I said, I've got to snap out of this. I can't, I can't do this. And there's got to be a way that I can, that, that you can create a community of people so that you can have that interaction, but with a positive creative intention of let's get together to share things that we've done, that we've been able to unplug. What, what is your passion? Let's, let's reconnect with that. You know, it did feel a little bit like an ostrich sticking its head in the sand, but at the same time, it's like self-preservation. Like I've got to take care of me. Otherwise I'm not going to get, uh, get through this kind of like the succubus with the straw. I can't just keep giving my phone this straw to suck my life out. I've got to, I've got to turn, turn that off. And so we started this thing and it was like 2000 people joined this Facebook group. It's insane. I, I still don't, know how that happened but it, it it was kind of that same intention of how how can we create something how how can there's got to be a place that i can carve out of of my internet world that is positive and i found that i've made these little changes like with instagram for instance i don't follow anything on instagram unless it is music or art, or craft, or or some kind of creative inspired. So if I look at Instagram, and it is a little bit of a black hole still, but I can scroll through, and I leave having a positive inspired feeling of going, wow, this person made the sweater, that looks really cool, I want to make that. Or, yeah. oh, cool, this person, you know, they're, they're making this music, I can go listen to their album or something. Rather than keeping up with celebrities, keeping up with news, I, I don't do any of that on Instagram. And I found that that has been a huge change and getting rid of Twitter because it's just, it, it's a cesspool, you know, I've never even been on Twitter. Don't. Never, I had an account for one day and I was like, this is dumb. I've, I've never, <laughs> I've never had a TikTok. I had a TikTok for one day and a Twitter for one day. And I think it's probably a blessing. I mean, if you, if you want to um, experience what Twitter's like, go in your closet and scream into your, uh, <laughs> you just, just scream into your coat closet. And that's basically the same thing. Um, no thanks no thanks on that it's horrible it's horrible I wanted to throw that out there to you if you ever want burlap bags we always have a plethora so if you need me to send you a, a bunch of burlap bags in your subscription box for you to do a craft activity like maybe make an apron or something. I have some that are not super scritchy and like, uh, you know, real fibrous. Some of them are just like really harsh on the skin, but I have some that are like real smooth, almost like a synthetic fiber mixed in with burlap mm -hmm. that iron well, that people have made like aprons and all kinds of beautiful stuff out of. So if you or any of the craft people want burlap, order a bag of coffee and put in the notes, please send me some burlap bags and I will hook it up for free. You know what that sound is? What? That is Mama Mocha's Milk and Honey. This is the time of the show where I get to um, talk about one of my favorite elements of the coffee uh, business that you have. Oh my gosh. And that is the packaging and the smell of it. I, we're almost out of time, but I want to talk about this a little bit. So first off, if you are listening this far again, uh, I'm talking with Sarah from Mama Mocha. 
uh, you can find her at www.mamamocha.com. Um, I get a bag of Mama Mocha coffee beans delivered to my house once a month, and that's through your um, subscription service. Yes. which I love because I loved ordering from you, but then I would forget because I, I have a goldfish brain. And anytime uh -huh. somebody's like, who has good coffee? I'm like, oh, I know Mama Mocha does, but I'm like, I've only ordered from her like twice. And so now that you do the subscription thing and you were able to like totally randomize it for me, which I love, I get a surprise bag of Mama Mocha beans. The packaging is gorgeous. Um, it's I'm looking at this uh, zebra striped, uh, magical thing, milk and honey with notes mm -hmm. of raw honey, coffee pulp, current. It's juicy and heavy. I just, I just love it. Uh, so yeah, you might be like me. Uh, you might want to have like the best coffee in the whole world in your house. And you can do that from mamamocha.com. Thanks. That was, that was like a paid advertising plug. I feel like that was like <laughs> really good. I'm just trying to get those cookies, those grandma <laughs> mocha cookies. You're going to get like 4,000 cookies and burlap bags just all in a giant box with one bag of coffee in the middle. Just like a burlap bag full of cookies would kind of be like my ideal. If you had to give somebody some advice, if somebody's starting something brand new for the first time, like um, like a creative venture or something, like if somebody's starting something for the first time, um, what might you tell them? It's, that's kind of hard because it depends on what the venture is. So I'll give a kind of like blanketed advice that I, I wish I had done from the beginning. And um, I did do it in a certain way. This, is, this sounds so simple. But you get a three ring binder and tab it and figure out how to break down the big idea into smaller bits and then put all of those ideas in those tabs and even if it is like middle school wide ruled paper three ring paper that you put in there and you can just sit at your table with coffee or wine or whatever and scratch out ideas on each of those tabs just go ahead and start moving the pen that you can have a, like goals within each one of those tabs of this grand idea of getting something started so that you can eat the elephant in small bites. You know, well, the, I have to do this, 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 and this. And sometimes that kind of puts people in a halt point because they become so overwhelmed by all the things that have to be done. And if you can just get it in a three ring binder, that's the starting point. If you ever get to the point where you're going to need a business plan to take to a bank, I know that's kind of a scary thought, but if you needed funding to make this thing ramp up or do whatever, after you've already started kind of crafting and creating and, and doing all the things like in the beginning, if let's say that you wanted to, your goal was to create a, a Etsy yarn thing i don't know I, I have all the yarn like things in my house i have no idea how to do it i really need to learn anyway you you wanted to like create things to put it on an etsy shop then just get the binder and say i want to offer koozies um you know stuff this i want to do this i can make these five things i will need this 
stuff to make these five things. This is the Etsy information on a separate tab of how to start the Etsy store. This other tab is how I will ship it out. My plan of shipping and how long it'll take. This is my other plan of like when I'll be able to create these things. And let's say that the Etsy store really ramps up and then you have to start having your friends over to help you create all these things. And it's to the next level. Eventually you may want to get a loan or something for you to create a studio for this crafting studio that you're going to build. In that case, they're going to want to know your business plan. Or if you just want to go ahead and start with a business plan. If you've never been to business school, you don't have to go to business school to write a business plan. The best piece of advice is for you to go to sba.gov, smallbusinessassociation.gov, sba.gov. They have printable business plans that ask questions for you to fill in those questions and it will create the business plan for you. And it may ask you questions you've not thought about before that are really good things to think about that the bank really wants to know. And if you don't know, or if you don't have that thing yet, it doesn't mean it's not possible. It means it's something that you've been made aware of that you can set a goal for. But you won't know to set that goal until you look at it in the face. So you can't run away from it. You've got to look at it. So the three ring binder and just setting small goals and being able to break down the big vision, that's the work that separates a dreamer from a doer is someone who is able to quantify the dream and put it on paper and then push forward with the work of it. So that's the advice I would give to somebody who is wanting to do something from scratch. That's amazing. That's amazing. Oh my gosh, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to the show and just, you know, bringing your expertise and your love and, and just, just for, for talking with me for a little bit. I would do this just like not on a podcast. Like you can call me whatever. <laughs> it's so great. In my la- I'm so glad you did this too. Cause like I got my uh, coffee order and you'd written that note in there and you you said, here's my number. Like just text me anytime. And I did right then. I'm like, I got my coffee. I'm so excited. By the way, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> so thank you so much. I just, I just love talking to you and um, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Love you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Socially Distant Craft Club podcast. Today's special guest was Sarah Barnett Gill, also known as Mama Mocha. If you'd like to have some Mama Mocha coffee in your home, go to www.mamamocha.com. I swear this is not a paid advertisement. I just really like her coffee. I'd also like to thank everybody who's been listening and subscribing and sending me really nice messages over the course of these two seasons that I've done. It's been really inspiring and honestly a lot of fun to make these podcasts. I'm going to be taking a little bit of a break for the next like two months because I'm traveling for the summer, which I cannot wait for um but i will see everybody back in the fall and um until then let's make something together